I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. As we continue on in our sermon series looking at the Gospel of John, we're looking today at chapter 3. The page, if you're using the red Bibles and the chairs around you, is printed in the bulletin for you. We are looking at the final verses of chapter 3, particularly chapter 3, verses 22 through verse 36. Beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one of the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet not no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause the same Holy Spirit who is mentioned in these verses, the same Holy Spirit who enabled these verses to be written down and has preserved them over these many years to be present with us in these moments, that our eyes might be opened, that we might see the greatness of Jesus. And Father, as we see the greatness of our Savior, I pray that you would move in each one of us, that we would desire to live in response to the greatness of our Savior. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, many of you are aware of the great Calvinist Baptist preacher and pastor, Charles Spurgeon. If you're not aware of him, you should be. Uh, He was known as an incredible preacher. He lived and pastored in London in the 1800s. He was a great preacher. He was a fiery preacher. He was a preacher that consistently and faithfully pointed people to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a story that is told about a group of Americans who had heard about Spurgeon and his preaching and they desired to go and hear him preach. And so they made plans to travel to London to hear 
Spurgeon preach. And as they were getting ready to go, some of their friends mentioned to them that there was another preacher in London who was also great, a man by the name of Joseph Parker, known for his eloquence in his sermons. And they encouraged them to go and hear Parker as well as Spurgeon. Well, the Sunday of their visit came, and Sunday morning they decided that they would go hear Parker preach first. And so they went to his church and heard him preach. And as they were leaving, one of the men of the group said this, I do declare, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever was. Well, that night... Both Parker and Spurgeon were preaching at their respective congregations, and many in the group actually wanted to go back to hear Parker preach again because of what they heard on Sunday morning. But they recognized that this was their only time to hear Spurgeon, and so they decided to go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear where Spurgeon was preaching. And as they left the service, that same man said, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior there ever was. They came away from Spurgeon's sermon seeing the glory and the greatness, not of a fallen human preacher, but the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us who would say that we believe and hold dearly to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of us who say that we hold to the greatness of Jesus live lives in such a way that when people see us, when people hear us, when we interact with people, they say, Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior there ever was. I think more likely we probably often resemble a a quote I came by this week from Pascal. He said this, we are so presumptuous that we should like to be known all over the world, even by people who will only come when we are no more. Such is our vanity that the good opinion of a half dozen of the people around us gives us pleasure and satisfaction. I think it exposes the reality that we are often more captivated and more motivated and more focused on the idea and the opportunity of our own greatness than with the truth of the ultimate greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin the season of Advent today. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. In the days of the Roman Empire, There was a celebration, there was a ceremony when the emperor would arrive, Adventus, in the city. And for many Christians, since at least the mid-5th century, they used the weeks leading up to Christmas to prepare, to celebrate Jesus' incarnation. And even as they do that, they also think about Jesus' second coming, his second advent. It's a time for us to get ready to celebrate the glory and the greatness of our Savior. But John chapter 3 also helps us to do that. It has been called one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. Today we're looking at the final verses of this chapter. Now most scholars believe that as we begin reading in verses 22 through verse 30, we're hearing from John the Baptist or about John the Baptist. But as we come to verse 31, most scholars believe that it's actually John, the author of the gospel, who once again takes up the narrative to summarize this entire chapter and to help us to understand 
the greatness of our Savior. So that's what I want us to do today. I want us to look at these two Johns. First, looking at John the Apostle, John the Disciple, the author of the book in verses 31 through 36. How he summarizes the chapter and how he shows us why Jesus is so great. And then we'll look at John the Baptist in verses 22 through 30 who gives us a picture, who gives us an example of how we should live our lives in response to the greatness of Jesus. So first of all, John, the author of the book, tells us why Jesus is so great. You can see that in verses 31 through 36. Just just look at all of the things that he says about Jesus and how great Jesus is. He tells us first in verse 31 that Jesus is great because he is from above. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is great because he comes from above. He comes from heaven. Plenty of people have gone to heaven. Only one has come. And the one who has come is God himself. And that's what John is telling us here, that Jesus is God. He is not of the earth. He is of heaven. He is divine that has been incarnated. He took on flesh and he became one of us. He is great because he is from above. But he's great not just because he's from above. He's also great, John says, because he is above all. He says it twice in verse 31, the beginning of the verse, and again at the end of the verse, that Jesus is above all. Not only does he come from above, he is above There is no one greater than Jesus. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the king over all creation. He is the king over all of his creatures. He has authority over all things. He is above all. And as we start to grasp the fact that he is above all, it leads us to understand what John says in verse 35, that he has given all things. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He has been given the ability to give life, to execute judgment, to possess all power in heaven and on earth, to have all things in subjection to him. He is given the ability to cleanse his people from their sins and unrighteousness, to redeem them and to restore them, to prepare them for a glory to come. He is given all things. But he's great, not just because he's given all things. John says he's great because he speaks the very words of God. You see that in verses 32 through 34. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Think of what that is. From eternity past, from the days of creation, Jesus, all that he has seen and he has heard, he bears witness, he bears testimony to those things. And as John says, not everybody receives his testimony, but some do. And when they do, he says they are a seal that God is true, that his word is true. When Jesus speaks, he utters the very word of God. Because he is the word, John told us in chapter 1. He was in the beginning. He was with God. He is God. All things have been made through him. And in him is life. 
He is light. He is the light of men shining in the darkness. And the word became flesh and it dwelt, it tabernacled with us. He displayed his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is great because he speaks the very words of God. He is the word. John says Jesus is great also because he has the Holy Spirit without measure. You can see that at the end of verse 34. God is uh, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. God the Father gives the Holy Spirit to God the Son and does so without measure. It's as we heard earlier in our service from Isaiah chapter 11. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And John himself told us in chapter 1 that he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus at his baptism. And notice John tells us that Jesus has the Holy Spirit to what degree? Without measure. I want you to think about times in your life, either in your life or somebody else's life that you've seen, where the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit has been displayed. Maybe it's been a time in your life when you saw a very particular answer to prayer. Or, or maybe it's a time in your life when you were able to say no in the moment of temptation. Or maybe it's a time in your life when a particularly difficult sin has been rooted out. And in those moments in your own experience or when you have seen that happening in somebody else, you have seen just but a bit of the power of the Holy Spirit. John says Jesus has the Spirit without measure. Jesus has limitless fellowship and empowerment from the third person of the Trinity. And Jesus, or John says, lastly, that Jesus is great because he is loved by the Father. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 35. The Father loves the Son from eternity past to eternity future. A love that is so great that it accomplished the plan of redemption. Of Jesus dying on the cross because of his love for his Father, the Father's love for the Son, and the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the people of God. This is how great Jesus is. He is from above. He is from heaven. And He is above all. And He has given all things and He speaks the very words of God. He has the Holy Spirit without measure and He is loved by His Father. He is great beyond compare, beyond measure, and his greatness is unchallenged. So the question that we must reflect on and the question that we need to answer is, how does the greatness of Jesus impact the way that we live our lives? What difference does the greatness of Jesus mean in how we live every day? And as we look at the first part of our passage today, verses 22 through 30, we see the other John, John the Baptist, Showing us how we should respond to the greatness of Jesus. Actually, the passage begins by giving, giving us an example of how not to respond to the greatness of Jesus. The context of what we're reading here is in verses 22 through 25. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. 
Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. It was sometime after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And Jesus and the disciples left Jerusalem and they went out into the countryside. They were staying in an area where there was plenty of water. And uh, the disciples of Jesus were baptizing people. Now, I know that when you read uh, the English translation here, it actually sounds like Jesus is the one doing baptism. But we'll find out in chapter 4, very specifically, explicitly, that Jesus didn't baptize anybody. A better sense of the Greek here is that Jesus' disciples were doing the baptizing and Jesus was there with them. So they were baptizing people, but John the Baptist was also in the area and his disciples were there and they were baptizing people as well. And so a discussion happened. You had all of these baptisms going on and John's disciples and a Jewish man got into a discussion. How are John's baptisms and Jesus's baptisms the same? How are they different? And how does all of that relate to the Old Testament purification rites? Now, that discussion was taking place, and so somebody had the great idea. Well, let's go ask John what he thinks about it. So we see that in verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, I would suggest to you that this is not just some innocent inquiry to get John's input into this discussion. The sense of verse 26 is that John's disciples were worried. They were anxious. They were afraid. They were jealous. They were upset. They looked across and they see John. They, they see Jesus and his disciples. They see the disciples baptizing people. And they see the people that had been following John the Baptist now flocking to Jesus. And they felt threatened by it. That's not the right way to respond to the greatness of Jesus. But I think it's a very easy way for us to respond often. When God particularly blesses another evangelical church or the pastors of a church. Or when God blesses somebody else in our own church family that is heading up a ministry or a service project. And God particularly blesses that person. It's so easy to become jealous so, so easily to, uh, to, to feel threatened, to covet what God's doing with them over there. But as we can see, that's not the way to respond to the greatness of Jesus. So how should we respond? Well, John the Baptist gives us a wonderful example of the right way to respond. He gives us a model that we can follow. His disciples brought this situation to him, this discussion. They were alarmed, they were jealous, and they probably thought, how much more so will John when he understands and sees what's happening? But that's not how John respond, responded. How did he respond to the greatness of Jesus being witnessed and revealed more and more? Well, the first thing that he was, was content. You see that in verse 27? John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, that may sound like a little bit of a confusing answer to their inquiry. 
They're wanting him to engage with this discussion that's happening between John's disciples and this Jewish, uh, this Jewish man about the purification rites and all of these things. They want to know how John is feeling about the fact that Jesus is getting more of the spotlight. And how does he answer? Well, he says that a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. What does that mean? I actually think it's fairly simple. John's basically saying this. No one has anything. No one has a gift, an ability, a talent, a treasure, unless it's been given to them by God. Everything that we have, our time, our treasures, our talents, every resource that we have has been given to us by God. And John understood that. His ministry, his purpose, his service up until this point had been given to him by the Lord. And John was content to be faithful in what the Lord had given him to do. He knew his place. He knew his role. He knew his purpose. He even told his disciples clearly, I'm not the Christ. I've simply been sent here to point to the Christ who is coming. The Lord had raised him up and given him skills to tell people about Jesus. And John was completely content for the greatness of Jesus to be on display and have the people focusing on him. I wonder, do you know that kind of contentment in life? Do you understand that whatever you have, whatever gifts you've been given, whatever talents you have, whatever skills you have, they've been given to you by God. Even the things that you've earned, your vocational success, your educational achievements, your standing in the community, your wealth, your possessions, even your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is given to you by God. The more that we understand that, the more that we recognize that that is true, the more content we can be with whatever the Lord calls us to do. Or whatever the Lord calls us not to do. The Lord doesn't call everybody to be in the spotlight of life. The Lord doesn't call everybody to be known and respected and admired in their vocational achievements. The Lord doesn't call everyone to be known and respected and admired in ministry opportunities. The Lord has called all of us to know that everything that we have is from Him and to be content in with whatever He gives us to do. John was content, but he was also joyful. You see that in verse 29, where he uses this illustration he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John uses this marriage, this wedding illustration, and he speaks about the friend of the bridegroom. And that's probably best understood like our best man today in a wedding service, although the friend of the bridegroom had more responsibilities than the best man in our culture usually does. The friend of the bridegroom act as a, acted as a liaison between the bride and the groom leading up to the ceremony. He was also responsible to arrange the wedding ceremony, make sure that invitations were sent out, people knew about it, and he presided at the feast after the wedding. And after the ceremony, he was even in charge of guarding the bridal chamber until the groom arrived to make sure that the bride was safe until the groom was there. And as he heard the groom coming, as he saw the groom there, he would rejoice and leave because his job was finished. John knew that he was not the bridegroom. John knew that he wasn't the bride. John knew his Old Testament. 
He knew the language that's used frequently in the Old Testament of the bride and the bridegroom, of the Lord and the people of God. John said he was the best man. His job was simply to get things ready for the groom and the wedding. And when the groom arrived, he would joyfully depart. And when he hears and he sees the groom, what does the text say? He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John's basically telling us that he's joyful that Jesus is there. He's joyful that the greatness of Jesus is being displayed. He's joyful because Jesus, the bridegroom, has arrived. And that means that God's grace in the gospel would soon be displayed. The moment of salvation being secured was coming soon. Jesus would go to the cross soon and he would lay down his life for his bride. John's expressing his joy in the gospel and God's grace. That it's true. That it's there. Are you joyful when Jesus gets glory and recognition and you don't? Are you joyful when you get the privilege and the blessing of serving Jesus and no one knows what you've done? Are you joyful when you get the privilege of just being faithful to the Lord and your calling, but you don't get any recognition of it? John was joyful. John was also humble. You can see that in verse 30. John said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Those are truly remarkable words to say. John's genuine desire, his genuine goal was that Jesus increase and that he decrease. That Jesus' importance and notoriety and fame and profile would increase and become greater. And John's importance and fame would decrease, become lesser. He wanted people to glory in the greatness of Jesus more and more. He was humble. He was content to slip into the shadows of the background. Do you live with that kind of humility? Are you happy to serve faithfully in whatever the Lord calls you to do, even if you don't get any recognition in it? Are you humble enough to serve in the church and ministry opportunities and not get the applause of the congregation? Are you humble enough to point people to Jesus and to help them grow in their faith if only they and Jesus know about it? How do you get that kind of humility? I think a lot of times when we think about trying to be more humble than we are, we think, well, we just need to try harder being humble. I don't think that works. The way that we grow in our humility is we start understanding and seeing the greatness of our Savior. A.W. Pink put it this way, Humility is not the product of direct cultivation. Rather, it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. But if I am truly occupied with the one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. If you want to grow in humility, fill your heart and your mind with the greatness of your Savior. So this is how we're supposed to rightly respond in the face of the greatness of Jesus. 
content to be faithful in whatever the Lord calls us to do, wherever he puts us, wherever he places us, content for the greatness of Jesus to be the focus of our lives, joyful to play our role in our vocations and ministry, joyful for Jesus to get the credit and the glory rather than us, and humble, genuinely desire for Jesus to increase and for us to decrease. I have a pastor friend who is nothing less than a fanatic about the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. If you go into his office, you'll see what can only be referred to as a shrine to the St. Louis Cardinals. He has pictures and baseballs and bats and baseball cards that have been signed by all of the greatest Cardinal players through the years. And at the center of the shrine is his prized and most treasured Cardinal possession. It's a 1958 all-star baseball card of Stan Musial, signed by Stan himself. Many of you know Stan Musial. His nickname is The Man. Stan the Man. Stan the Man Musial. Arguably the best Cardinals player in the history of the team. Arguably one of the greatest baseball players in the history of the sport. And he got his nickname, Stan the Man, because he left such an impression on the city of St. Louis, certainly through his baseball career, but also through his charitable giving and endeavors in that city. The city loves him, even though he's passed away. Stan the man. Well, my friend tells the story of one time when he was out to lunch with another one of his friends in the city of St. Louis, and they were seated at a table such that my friend had his back to the door and his friend was facing the entrance to the restaurant. And they were talking and going back and forth. And at one point, his friend stopped mid-sentence and had this really unusual look on his face. And then he said, here comes the man. My friend didn't understand what he was saying, and he was a bit confused. And so he said, well, what are you talking about? He said, Stan the man Musial just walked into the restaurant. And sure enough, the hostess walked them right by their table and sat them down, their, their entourage, about two tables away from them. My friend said it was all he could do to keep his cool. He, he wanted to jump up and go and introduce himself. He wanted to stare at Stan the man usual as he was eating his lunch. But he said, no, I need, to, I need to play it cool. And so they continued their conversation and they finished their lunch. And as my friend got up, he began to put his jacket on. The jacket he had on that day was a Louisville Sluggers jacket. Louisville Sluggers is the best known uh, brand name of making bats. And as he was putting on his Louisville Slugger jacket, another man at the table with Stan the Man said, Hey, you know who the greatest baseball player to ever swing one of those bats was? My friend said, Of course, it was Stan the Man Musial. The guy at the table said, Well, do you know who was sitting right here at this table right now? And my friend said, Of course, it's Stan the Man Musial. And then he said, Hey, Stan, turn around and meet one of your greatest fans. An 85-year-old Stan, the man usual, turned around in his seat and said, Hey, kid, and stuck out his fist so my friend could give him a fist bump. My friend said he didn't wash his hand for a week. <laughs> the city of St. Louis still considers Stan as the man, even though he died in 2013. He still revered... Uh, affectionately as the man, if you talk to people in St. Louis, for the impact that he had on the city in so many ways over so many years. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine what it would be like to be the man or the woman just for a day? The fame, the love, the devotion, the recognition, the notoriety, the influence, the power. There is something inside of every single one of us that craves that. Maybe in big ways or maybe in small ways. But it's there. A desire to be the man. If anybody had that opportunity, it was these two Johns at the end of chapter 3. John the Baptist and John the author of the book. But rather than aspiring for greatness, greatness of themselves, of their ministries, they focused on the greatness of Jesus. And because they had such a robust understanding of the greatness of Jesus, they lived their lives differently in response to it. How about you? How are you going to live your life differently this week? Because of the greatness of your Savior. And as we finish, I have to turn our attention to the last verse that we read. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you believe in the Son, you understand and hold to the greatness of our Savior. You have eternal life. Not when you die. Now. It's that real. It's that true. But he goes on to say, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And if you're here today, you're online today, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't understand, you don't hold to and believe and treasure the greatness of Jesus Christ, then let today be the day when you put your faith in Him. Let today be the day that your sins are forgiven forever and the wrath of God for your sins is turned away from you forever. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this week to come that you would give us opportunities to see and reflect on the greatness of our Savior. Help us to see the greatness of who He is. The greatness of all that He's accomplished. The greatness of His work as our advocate, even in this very moment. Father, as we see those little glimpses of the greatness of Jesus, I pray that you would cause us through the work of your spirit to live our lives in accord with the greatness of Jesus. Make us more holy. Make us desire more to live our lives according to your word. Make us love you more. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.